Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners wherever you are on the planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Law Firm. We are your hosts and Aaron Fox International Practice Group co-chairs. I'm Hunter Carter. And I'm Malcolm McNeil, and we'll be talking with partners, other lawyers, special guests about topics of interest in the law of international business and international business. Well, how are you, Hunter? Great to see you. I'm looking forward to getting some information regarding our guest today, who happens to be a dear friend and colleague. Would you like to make the introduction? I'm delighted to, Malcolm. Good to see you again. You've been in trial for what seems like half a year, and I'm glad to see you back. And it is for a really great day today. We have our partner, Elliot Kroll, who in the insurance world needs no introduction because I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know him. He's been in the insurance practice for a long time. And we invited Elliot to join us today to talk about the state of the global insurance markets and legal issues that our business leaders and clients and friends around the world need to know about. So without further ado, welcome, Elliot. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. Elliot, we always like to start our podcast introducing our guests to our listeners. So uh, take a minute and just tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do generally as a practice and how did you get into this racket? Well, I've been doing this a long time, pretty much my entire career. And I started as a boy. My father was one of the world's first international insurance lawyers. And I actually sort of grew up at Lloyd's, spent a lot of time there when I was a kid in London and learned at the foot of the master. And I've been doing this ever since and fortunate to have some good partners along the way. Well, I'm sure that's true, especially if President Company. Wouldn't you agree, Malcolm? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you met some very formidable lawyers in your career and in this podcast. <laughs> Well, you know, situate us a little bit in terms of what it is that you do. There's lots of different aspects of the insurance business. People may think of simple claims coverage. People may think of much more complex regulatory and transactional work like you do. Give us a bit of a flavor of that, and then we'll move to a discussion of the key topics. The reality is that the insurance and reinsurance industry has always been global. The London market has been central to insurance in the United States and most countries since Edward Lloyd first opened up his coffee shop for owners of various seafaring vessels back in the 17th century. And what's happened, though, over the past 30 years is the global nature of risk transfer has shifted to a certain extent to the global financial markets through various types of instruments, cat bonds, catastrophe bonds, and other types of financial insurance, financial reinsurance, because financial markets have much deeper pockets than the insurance industry. So you have both the traditional insurance and reinsurance market, and you have the financial market at play now. These global insurance markets, it seems to me, have had a really rough go of it the last couple of years. Many of our guests on this podcast talk about how COVID has affected their business and has forced them to shift their game or endure difficult consequences. There are other significant global events going on right now. What's your take, given all of your years in the industry, on where we are in the global insurance markets today? Part of the problem that both the financial and the traditional markets have sustained over the past six, seven years is losses that were never properly modeled. And an example of that is the wildfires in California. No one expected those, but the magnitude and the speed of those events. And the other aspect was an example was Hurricane Ida, which was just last September. What happened there, you had a Gulf storm that ripped through Louisiana and took out, by the way, about 40,000 electrical poles. It was a major problem in that respect. But then came through New York, where you had, what, 
30 people drowned in their basements and the like. So no one ever modeled for a Gulf hurricane causing that much damage from the Northeast. So, you know, people could model for certain expectations with respect to earthquakes, certain expectations with respect to hurricanes. But these secondary tertiary type losses, people didn't expect coming out of the woodwork, really severely impacted the insurance-linked securitization market, which goes into the financial markets, the ILS markets. And traditional reinsurers got shellacked. And as a result, we're seeing that today, for example, in Florida, where companies just can't buy the type of traditional reinsurance that they need. And Florida has a real serious crisis. You know, it's like that old joke about the chairman of the board of a company who said last year we were on the edge of a precipice and this year we took a great leap forward, right? <laughs> that's the situation that Florida's in today for its homeowners coverage. And that's going to trickle through to the other Gulf states, and particularly Louisiana, where you got four insurance carriers that have gone insolvent recently because of hurricane-related losses. And we're just beginning to enter into hurricane season. Well, Malcolm, over to you. That brings me to our local situation, because, of course, we're based here on the West Coast in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And what we've been seeing here is, of course, the fire season where we're spared hurricanes. But we, of course, are constantly looking over our shoulder and ahead of us at that. I had a question, though, when you talked about the reinsurance markets, because many clients, because of the Malibu fires, are now dealing with non-admitted insurers and those kinds of things because they can't get standardized insurance through, you know, let's say the big five of homeowners insurance. But my question was a more general one. Are those types of policies all written by those carriers, say in all state, state farm, or do those policies also get reinsured? Great question. So first of all, the very biggest, and it started with State Farm and it came down to Allstate, they're so big, they cannot buy in the traditional catastrophe reinsurance market what they need. They don't need $500 million of reinsurance, excess of $500 million. They need $2 billion, excess of $2 billion. And no one sells it because it's too big a limit and the premium is too small. So those folks either buy no reinsurance, which is the case with State Farm, and to a certain extent with Allstate, or they place securitizations in the financial markets. Another great example of that is USAA, which is a terrific company. And they were one of the first, actually, to go to the bond market to buy catastrophe reinsurance going way back. They're one of the first. So for the smaller companies, though, they're heavily dependent on the traditional reinsurance market. They don't have the gravitas. They don't have the resources to go into the financial markets, and they really need to buy traditional reinsurance. And the prices have shot up dramatically. To what extent is this, let's say, I'll use the word upheaval or dramatic shift in the reinsurance market. How does that impact the average businesses? Like, for example, our listeners who are trying to determine their risk assessment and purchase of insurance, what should be their considerations? It's going to affect everyone. And what we're seeing now is that more and more middle market companies are looking for alternative risk transfer opportunities. And the prime one that a lot of medium-sized companies are starting to look at for the first time are captives, captive insurance companies, where they can retain some of the risk themselves, basically buying it wholesale instead of buying it retail. And then they, in turn, can try to go access the reinsurance market and then also handle their own claims. The net result of which is so much more control over their own destiny from the insurance perspective, and hopefully not only saving now on the risk transfer premium, 
but also long-term, creating assets and putting themselves in a better shape to manage their liabilities over the longer term and smooth out their financial results rather than having these wild gyrations and premium one year after the next. How does that affect the transactional business between carriers now? Me, from the standpoint of business, what are the business opportunities? If somebody is in this market as a reinsurance CEO, for example, what opportunities are they looking for or are they ducking for cover because of the swings in the marketplace? This is one of the best times ever to write reinsurance. The market is what we call hard. The premiums are high. The risks are more tapered. And so a reinsurer, I won't quite go so far as say they'll have their pick of the litter, but they can pick and choose. There's a lot of chunky premium out there that's attractive, but then people look a little deeper and they see that they've got to be very careful about the risks that they're actually accepting. But it's a great time now to be a risk taker in the market. Hunter, have you any follow-up here? Yeah, thanks. The captive market you described has a number of advantages, but what are the disadvantages? What are the increased risks to companies that take on captives, and how do you control for those? You have, from a certain perspective, the frictional cost of establishing the captive in the first instance, and then the yearly maintenance of that. You have to have someone who's going to take responsibility, and typically things like that fall upon a CFO, but then you get involved in the PETA principle, right? Because a lot of CFOs, you know, they may know how to pay the premium, but doesn't know how to manage risk. So you have have to make sure that you bring along the right consultants, the right third party to give you guidance to make sure that the risk is properly managed at all levels. And part of the way it's done these days are through what are called sell captives, which are very quick and easy to set up. You're basically renting capital from the sponsor that sets up the vehicle. But if you get the right professionals helping you, more and more folks are finding it a very effective way to go. And 40% of all captives that are formed are formed for healthcare. Because healthcare is also, we all know, a spiraling risk that every enterprise, including our law firm, has to deal with. You mean captives to manage the healthcare insurance cost of the sponsor's employees? Correct. And those people buy what's called specific and aggregate stop loss reinsurance, and they self-insure the risk. All right. So I want to actually change subjects just a little bit. You know, we've talked a lot about premiums and alternative structures, but I mentioned the loss profile, which is kind of where I started. And uh, you and I were talking about this the other day. There's tremendous loss in the aircraft market associated with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And on the day that we're recording this podcast, the Turkish government has announced an agreement between the Ukrainian and Russian governments to facilitate the export of Ukrainian wheat through the channels that the naval blockade has blocked. That may help stabilize other markets, but in the aircraft market, I'm given to believe there's 400 and some jet aircraft owned by foreign companies, lessors, trapped inside of Russia, not leaving, and probably never going to fly again because they've been picked clean for parts. And of course, the insurance carriers are all facing claims for that. How much disruption can something sudden and unforeseen like that have on global insurance markets? It's hard to quantify because it's just so material, so significant. One claim that was put in already from one of the big leasing companies was for over $10 billion, which I believe is three times the annual premium in the aviation war risk market. Uh, this coverage is also referred to CNED, Confiscation, Nationalization, Expropriation, Deprivation. You're absolutely right, Hunter, that these planes are scrap. Everything important undoubtedly has been stripped out of them. It's typically what happens. And Russia is not the Mojave Desert where we typically store mothball plants, right? These planes are probably rusted. 
I mean, they're, they're used to just run. And the increase in the war risk in the aviation market has been in the thousands of percent. It's been extraordinary just how high the premium has been going in the aviation market for war risk. I understand that. I guess maybe there's an opportunity there for the aircraft manufacturers to sell new aircraft, but we'll only tell in time. How do the insurance markets react to something like this Russian invasion? Entirely unforeseen. Sanctions have disrupted business. Banking sanctions have cut off access to financial markets. If this wheat gets through, it'll be a great relief to Northern Africa, as I understand it. But there's still fertilizer and its essential components that isn't getting through and that could create tremendous food insecurity in places like the part of the world that I study work in the most South America, and the Brazilians are doing everything they can do to get fertilizer in there. Peru is already experiencing much higher inflation than we are, for example, just because of this. Argentina was having its own inflation problems, and now they're much worse for that. And how do lawyers like yourself help clients deal with these entirely unforeseen developments? I'll add one more important component to what you just said. Everything you said, I agree with, but it's also the problem is neon. Apparently, the Ukraine supplied some ridiculously high percentage of the neon in the world, which apparently is using various technology. Certainly all the important diners that I go to. <laughs> I was thinking more like the watering holes, Hunter, but that's all another issue. <laughs> that's my code word, Elliot. You know that. <laughs> so the area that has undoubtedly been tattooed on, on the Ukraine is the trade credit market. There are a handful of major trade credit companies, but people don't really appreciate, unless you're in that, and, and I've done a fair bit of work in that area over the years, the policies in that area are ginormous. The insurance policies issued in the billions of dollars, but then they're very carefully monitored by the companies to make sure that they're very careful about managing that risk. So for example, if you're Walmart, right, if you're McDonald's, right? You've got hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of goods in transit all the time. You've got the trade credit from the people you're dealing with and you insure it. Well, that market had to have been hit so hard by this. And also, by the way, it was also affected by COVID. And unlike the typical business interruption policies, there was no exclusion in the trade credit policies. The trade credit insurers had to pay. So between COVID and the Ukraine, the trade credit market had been hit hard by these types of global disruptions. And that in turn will filter through to the prices we pay at Target or Costco or wherever else we shop for a lot of mundane products. One of the hot topics in my part of the world in Latin America is this idea of nearshoring or friendshoring. If Malcolm's part of the world, which is Asia and China, has involved you know global supply chains and you know flat markets, there's a lot of talk, at least in the policy communities and in Washington, of trying to reduce the kind of risk you were just talking about, which is supply chain risk and logistics risk, by bringing manufacturing operations and other trading operations much closer and into theoretically more friendly or more stable economies. Do you have a sense that things like that offer any real promise or are they the kind of thing that gets a lot of talk? Hard to say. I think that people generally go in the direction that the path of least resistance and things that are complicated, even though they make sense, don't necessarily you know, take off. I can tell you that, Malcolm, in terms of Southeast Asia, a lot of insurers right after the Ukraine invasion were looking at Taiwan and they were really, really bug-eyed and really concerned about what might be next. 
This is something that is directly on my radar because I represent Taiwanese companies and spend some time informing people on the differences between the ROC and the PRC and the political issues because generally people, unless they're tuned in, don't know the differences. But that is a question, and that is to what extent do the insurers, let's say, take bets on, to use a a very basic phrase, on what's going to happen in terms of their risk assessment, premium determination, and whether or not they're going to work in that market. Is there such a thing as, let's say, a group of executives or a group within the firm of the insurance carrier deciding what are the war risks and how do we price it and what's covered? Absolutely. And I can tell you that I say this based on actual discussions with several different segments of the market after the Ukraine invasion. The world is definitely segmented from an insurance and reinsurance perspective because the risks, for example, Hunter in, in South America are very different than Malcolm, the risks in Southeast Asia in terms of war risk and, you know, after the Ukraine, right? So there's no question that folks in the insurance industry and in that aspect of the financial industry that provides through securitizations coverage for insurance and reinsurance risks, a very granular approach to where the risks are located, what is expected. One other thing that I want to make sure I throw in here that I would otherwise be remiss if I didn't is the concept of what I see as the future, which is parametric insurance. And we represent some major players in that area. Basically, those policies on the West Coast with respect to earthquake, in the Southeast and the Gulf Coast with respect to hurricane, where they pay out almost like a naked swap. They pay out if earthquake, if the Richter scale for an earthquake is over 6.5 or 7 in a particular locale, or in Florida, if a hurricane named storm, not named by the Weather Channel, but named by the NOAA, is over 75 miles an hour, they'll pay 5%. Over 105 miles an hour, they pay 30% and so on. And I see these parametric trigger insurance and reinsurance concepts as, to a very large extent, the future of how we deal with a very changing climate, very changing world, and with risks that are very difficult to model. When you said parametric there for a second, I wanted to do an Emily Latella and ask why you're talking about paramedic insurance and why do paramedics need insurance? But I get that the insurance is against parameters and the claims can be based on that. You've used a lot of terms that I've heard only a little bit. One going back a minute was cat bonds, which I assume is catastrophe and felines and how they're issued. But you know what we haven't talked about too much is the regulatory environment or the litigation and disputes environment around the insurance market. We've talked about basic policy, premium, and loss economics. How is that translating into how carriers deny coverage and how coverage claims are made and how reinsurance disputes occur? Is that a settled market? Is it exploding? What's, what's sort of happening in terms of disputes? And then I'm going to want to turn the question towards the regulatory environment. Well. COVID's a great example. So when COVID came and we all locked down, a lot of carriers were faced with hundreds, if not thousands, of lawsuits for business interruption coverage based on COVID. And the regulators said almost nothing. Why? Because they had approved the rates and the forms. So they knew when they approved the rates that they never intended to cover what happened with COVID. So they stayed out of it. And the courts, by and large, almost unanimously, sided with the insurance industry. There were a few exceptions here and there, but not too many. And I'll be attending, as I always do, the National Association of Insurance Commissioner meeting. It's going to be in Portland, Oregon in a few weeks. And 
It's a unique type of get together. It's not a conference, it's not a convention, it's a meeting where industry and regulators get together to try and find practical solutions for a lot of problems. Now, some of them are intractable. Every state in the United States has flood, but it's the private market has always struggled to provide good solutions for flood. All of us in the United States are going to have issues with respect to long-term care coverage. So these events where regulators and insurance industry folks get together are very constructive. And it's how we protect the solvency of insurance companies, because without solvency, nothing else matters. Insurance companies not solvent, claims don't get paid. So how do we protect solvency of insurance companies? How do we get the consumer what the consumer needs? And what's the most efficient way to navigate these issues for effective regulation? So as a general rule, I feel very bullish on the manner in which the insurance industry is regulated at the state level in the United States, it works. And, you know, that old expression, don't let perfection get in the way of good. And I think that very much applies in this area. With respect to litigation, there's a wide disparity in the United States between the different jurisdictions, and some are more consumer-friendly than others, and we all know that. And, you know, the insurance industry works within those guidelines. But again, COVID's a great example because we're not going to do something silly here. We're going to interpret the policy as written. And the insurance industry over the year has not been static. They've been dynamic as different things have happened, and different folks try to push the envelope, and the insurance industry responds. A good example is Katrina. Katrina was this incredibly devastating loss. And you know, some people try to take advantage of certain aspects of the way the policy is rewarded and the insurance industry responded by tightening up and tweaking policies here and there to make their underwriting intent clear. And it's not a panacea, which is why people do creative things to try and make sure that people get the coverage they need, such as what I referred to earlier with this development in the parametric area. And then the other aspect is the ESG. We're going to see ESG filter through in a big way in the industry. Most of the major carriers have taken a stance on it. If you got a coal plant, good luck getting insurance. There are a lot of other related areas, but the climate change issue is going to be a major challenge to the insurance industry, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's one other cutting-edge issue that I wanted to ask about before I turn it over to Malcolm to close out our really fascinating conversation, and thank you, Elliot, very much for it, and that's cyber insurance. So one of the things in the international space that we are always concerned about is the predatory international cyber conduct that produces real business loss, the Maersk shipping line, the ransomware situation, for example. That's a developing market, I imagine, and probably a little difficult to deal with in terms of knowing risks. I don't know who participates in it or reinsures in it or if premiums are going up or if it's leveling out. What's your understanding of where the cyber markets are and what are the opportunities for carriers, for insurance carriers in terms of writing business? And what are the risks for policyholders? Before you answer that, can I also add a tail end to that? Because maybe that'll be part of the tail end. And that is you talked about carriers tweaking policies in order to, in a different context, but tweaking policies in order to respond to the risks that have become apparent. In the cyber realm, I reviewed, I don't know how many policies and I noticed so many different forms. Is there a standardization taking place in that arena? Or is everybody sort of working along with their own, let's say, manuscript concept of what they want to ensure in the cyber arena? Well, on the last point, it's without disrespect to anybody, I'm just being facetious here. It's a little bit like the Three Stooges, one for all, all for one, every man for himself. So it's all over the lot. But cyber, and then I also want to just touch on crypto for two seconds, too, because the kidnapped ransom market is a crypto-based market. There are certain carriers, some former clients of ours, other people good friends of ours, 
were writing a ton of business, increasing their capacity, writing more and more business. And nobody has a clue how to really price the business because the risks are huge. And hacking is just something that we have to all deal with every single day of our lives. So certain carriers like Berkshire won't touch it. They try to stay away from cyber because Warren Buffett doesn't think you can adequately price or accurately price the business. So it's a real challenge. And then, you know, once the Chinese figure out quantum computing, which can cut through any password in the world, except for a quantum password, which of course no one has, right? It's all well done. And so every the, time I sign into my computer, I feel like it's quantum because I can't remember all the damn characters. Well, well tell us about crypto because that's also a huge, uh, especially in Central and South America with El Salvador's president taking a really big play on Bitcoin, making a national currency that's public, that's tender and acceptable for paying debts there and distributed a small amount in crypto wallets to all Salvadorans who wanted it. There's a lot of South American interest in crypto. Is insurance being written for crypto losses? Is it payable in crypto policy premiums or can insurance coverage limits be set in crypto currencies? What are the parameters of crypto in one minute or less, <laughs> you know, in the insurance markets? Most of the kidnap and ransom policies wind up getting paid out in crypto. Most folks who, you know, are the bad people, that's how they want to be paid for the anonymity that comes with crypto. There are folks that play in the market, who represent one of the biggest digital asset companies in the world. And these issues are significant. We're helping them on the insurance side as well as other aspects with some of their crypto partners. But it will definitely affect the insurance industry in many ways. But initially, the biggest effect will be on the kidnap and ransom market, where it's basically the currency of choice. I'll come over to you to close it out. Elliot, thanks very much. Well, that raised a whole host of questions because I'm presently involved in two white-collar criminal prosecutions right now, and there are a series of investors who are suing, and there was actually a handful of policies that were out there. So we all understand the criminal issues and the non-insurability, if you will. It Just is, for the record, though, Malcolm, you're not involved so much as your clients are involved in those criminal well, cases. No, that 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 is true. I don't want to. I No, exactly. <laughs> Hunter, uh, yes, I am handling two of these matters with Terry Powers out here. But the question was that some of the investors have come in and have filed civil lawsuits. And the question was, to what extent were those civil lawsuits going to be covered? And I guess, to what extent are the carriers apprehensive about cyber insurance? Or are they aggressive, like the Three Stooges, as you mentioned earlier, that they're trying to get premium because everybody is afraid. And if everybody's afraid, afraid they want to buy insurance and they want to spread the risk? Or is it hard to get it because the carriers don't want to take the risks and are dealing in an area where, let's say, the risks may not be fully accessible? The crypto, cyber, market, those are all specialty business, all excess and surplus lines, very little of it is going to traditional companies right now. And in part, because when I was a kid, we used to call it throwing darts. I hear now it's called throwing axes. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a crapshoot. And there's a lack of clarity, a lack of certainty, and a lack of predictability. And anytime you're in that type of situation, the traditional carriers, they go to the sidelines and wait till the dust settles. Understood. Thank you for that, Elliot. Well, Elliot, I will echo what Hunter said a moment ago. It's been absolutely a joy. Those of us who know you and, and in a personal context as well as in a professional context, we're happy you made time to be with us today. We know that the audience has enjoyed this opportunity to get a glimpse into the world that you are immersed in. And I look forward to the next time we have the opportunity to work together on one of these matters.
Likewise. Thanks so much for this opportunity, gentlemen.